last week as we were preaching this continuing series called The Story of God, His Redemptive Pursuit Through Scripture, I was preaching over Abram or Abraham and the covenant that God had given with him. And in that sermon, I mentioned a song that was sung about Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And after I mentioned that, I heard from some of you that you had never seen that song or heard that song. And that made me very sad in my heart. So, before we begin, those of you who know it can join me if you'd like. It goes like this. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right on, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right leg, Father Abraham had many sons. All right. <laughs> it gets a bit crazy. At the end, you're turning around, you're raising your arms, you're raising your head up and down, and then you finally sit down because you're exhausted. Unless you're a little kid when you're learning that song, and then you want to do it immediately again. You know, I love movies. I like to watch movies. I like to watch them in theaters, in cinema, to see them on the big screen. I love to watch them at home. I love to watch them on my little device with earphones in my ears. I like movies a lot. And the way movies start is by someone going to someone else and doing a pitch. They go in and they say, I've got this story. I think it needs to be a film, and I want to tell you about it. And basically, they're trying to see if they can get the financing to actually do the movie. So I want you to imagine with me a pitch taking place. There, there's a couple of guys and they've been reading the Bible and they've been thinking about, in particular, the book of Genesis, about chapter 17 through 50, which is good because that's what we're preaching on today. And so they've been thinking about it and ruminating about it and they think, this will make a great movie. It will be awesome. And so they set an appointment with a studio executive and they go in to give the pitch. And they say, we have this great story. It's a story about how a nation is built. And it starts with this guy named Abraham. And, and basically, Abraham is told that he is going to be the father of this great nation. But he's married to a woman who can't have children. So that woman, Sarah, says, take my servants and have children with her so that you can be the father of a great nation. And Abraham does that. And he has a child, Ishmael, with Hagar. Then, as they are wandering around, because even though God had promised them a land to have this great nation, they didn't trust that, and so they wandered around, and they came to a place where there was Abimelech, a king. And Abraham was really worried and afraid. And so he said to his wife, Say that you're my sister. And Abimelech took in Sarah to be his wife. 
But God put a curse on him, and God put a curse on all of the families in Abimelech's kingdom. And all of the women became barren because Abraham had lied and said that Sarah was his sister. But God protected her. Then finally, they have their child, and they name him Isaac. And out of the blue, Abraham hears a voice that says, I want you to take your only son, the son that I've promised that your great nation will be built of, and I want you to take him up on the mountain, and I want you to kill him. And Abraham says, okay. And he goes and does it. And he walks up the mountain, and just as he's about to kill him, God provides a ram and says, don't kill Isaac. Then Sarah dies. Now, Isaac comes onto the scene. Now, the executives here are sort of thinking, now, who are they going to be giving this movie to? Who's their audience that they're trying to go towards? And they say, Isaac is great, and he walks, and he lives a life, and he has Rebecca. And Rebecca is barren, of course. She can't have children either. But then... God blesses her finally, and she does, and she has a son named Esau and a son named Jacob. As a matter of fact, they're twins, and Jacob is holding on to Esau's hill as he's coming out of the womb, grabbing a hold of him. And oddly enough, they run into Abimelech as well. And oddly enough, Isaac looks at Rebekah and says, be sure you tell him that you're my sister. Then Isaac being old of age and sort of losing his eyesight, ends up giving the blessing that should go to Esau to Jacob because Jacob is a conniver and deceitful. He covers himself with sheep's wool and he brings in goat for his father to eat as if it was killed out in the wild. And his father even smells him to make sure that it's Esau. But it's not. And he gives him the blessing. Immediately, Esau knows that he's going to kill his brother. He can't wait for his father to die so he can get his hands around that conniving, deceitful brother's neck. And so Rebecca says, run away, run away. And Jacob does. Now at one point, Jacob has a dream. And he sees angels going up and down a ladder. And God says to him, this will be your land. This will be the place where this great nation will be. And he finds this beautiful girl, Rachel, and he wants to marry her. But she has an older sister named Leah. And Laban, his uncle, who is Rachel and Leah's dad, lied to him. He works for seven years for Rachel. It seemed like only a few days because his love was so great for Rachel. But as soon as the wedding night was over and he woke up in the morning, he looked over and it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. And Laban, his new father-in-law, this deceitful man, kind of turn about this fair play for Jacob, says, well, if you work for me another week, keep her for a week, then I'll give you Rachel, and then work for me seven more years. He says, fine, I'll do that. And after seven years, he goes to him and says, it's time for me to go, separate us out. And Laban goes, well, I'm not sure I want you to go. And, and they have a conversation about sheep and about the prosperity that Laban has felt from having Jacob there. And then Jacob devises this awesome plan. And he basically tricks Laban out of all the good sheep and all the good goats. As a matter of fact, when he sees the strong goats and the strong uh, sheep uh, mating, preparing to have children, he would go and put reeds down so that they would become spotted. 
because those were the ones that he got to keep. And when the weak ones were mating, he would move the reeds away so that they wouldn't be spotted. Now, how that works, because I'm not part of husbandry, I don't know, but that's how it worked. And so eventually, Laban sees that Jacob is basically tricked him. And so Jacob says, I've got to leave. And so they still, uh, they run away as quickly as they can. And he fears Esau because he hears that Esau is coming. Now, that doesn't include these side characters within the, you know, patriarch cinema universe that we're having here. Because there's Lot, whose daughters get him drunk and sleep with him. And there's Dinah, who is Judah's son later on, uh, who, who, Dinah, who is uh, Jacob's son, uh, daughter, who ends up being raped, who the brothers come home and kill all the men after they've been circumcised. And there's Judah and Tamar, who he ends up having uh, a relationship with his daughter-in-law. Not because he knows his daughter-in-law, because his daughter-in-law thought, acted like she was a prostitute. And then Joseph, who's arrogant and brash, who gets sold into slavery. Now at this point, the executives are really wondering, who is he going to sell this movie to? And they go, we're going to sell this movie to Christians. Because they're going to love this story. And those movie executives go, there's no way Christians are going to love this story. It has sex, it has prostitution, it has murder, it has violence, it has deceit, it has lying. I mean, they might actually boycott this movie if we put it out. What, what source are you using this from? What fictitious sort of tale are you trying to spin here? And they look at the movie executives and they say, oh, oh no, it's... Genesis, chapter 17 through chapter 50. Now, when we think about Hebrews that we just read, where it says, by faith, these things happened. And then we hear the stories that take place, this history of the patriarchs in Genesis. It seems that they are actually actively trying to stop God's redemptive pursuit they run away from the land, they marry barren women, and they steal each other's blessings. They're never a blessing to the people around them. As a matter of fact, more often than not, they're in conflict with the other nations that are around them. And so sometimes it's hard for us to look at it and go, what really is happening here? Now remember, the title of this series is called The Story of God. But in this story of God, when we see God face to face, when we begin to recognize his redemptive pursuit for us, it also reveals our humanity. You see, because he's the creator of us. He knows who we are. He's the one who made us and designed us from the foundations of the world. And so there's a couple of things that we can see about our own humanity in this story of God. The first thing that we notice this is that our fear causes us to move in ways that are contrary to God's redemptive pursuit. We see that happening with Abraham and Jacob. Why did they lie? Why did they say, tell them that you're my sister? Because of fear. 
Well, what does that fear come from? Well, sometimes it comes from control, that we think we have things figured out, that we think we know how things need to be happening, and, and so we are fearful if things move outside of our control. And we set up our lives in such a way that doesn't really rely or trust on God's redemptive pursuit. We build systems and we build boundaries in order to keep us safe because we want control. The other one is safety. Abraham and Jacob certainly wanted safety. They didn't want to die. And so their fear was a longing for safety. You see, their world seemed like it was going crazy. Why are we not in the promised land? Why are we not where God told us that we would be, that we would inherit? This promise, this redemptive pursuit that he's put on us, this covenant, it doesn't seem like it's coming true. As a matter of fact, I've been put in harm's way. So I need to control it for my own safety and my fear drives me to safety. Sometimes our fear is about our power, that we don't want to lose it that we don't want to be in a place where we might seem weak, where we might seem failing. The second way that it can come out is in shame. We see that in Sarai and Rachel. They're not able to have children, and so what do they do? They take matters into their own hands, and they say, Oh, Abram, sleep with Hagar. Oh, Rachel says to Jacob, I can't have babies. Leah's having all these babies with you. Take my servant. And then Leah in turn says, well, I've stopped having babies, so take my servant. We have shame because we have a reputation that we want to uphold. See, godly women, women that were true, women that were pure, they were the ones that gave children to their husbands. And so their reputation was at stake. Rachel's position was at stake. Sarah's position was at stake. I hold this place of honor. I should be honored. And yet we feel shame when somehow, some way, we aren't able to do it on our own. Our acceptance. Our desire for acceptance drives us to a place where we will do multiple things to cover our shame. It's really happened since the fall. And it just continues to happen over and over again. So how does that work out, really? How does fear and shame work in our lives? What does it reveal about who we are as we see the patriarchs moving? Well, one of the main things that it does is it causes us to move to an area of distrust of the God who knows the answers. Because when we have fear, believing that God's actually not going to accomplish and provide us with safety and power to overcome the things that we encounter, or when we have shame because either one, we feel like our position or our reputation has been called into question by those around us who don't have a right to do that, or because we feel like we have sinned so badly that there's no way that God could ever accept us. We cover ourselves in shame. And we begin to control and we come up with reasons and excuses for why we act the way that we act. I really didn't listen to much Christian music when I was growing up. Um, well, you know, I was a third generation pastor and so by that time you're kind of like, I don't want to listen to Christian music. But there was a group that was actually made up of lots of other groups, singers from lots of other groups called Lost Dogs. And they sing 
multiple songs in there, sort of uh, folk and country and blues. And, but they have this song, and I want to read you the lyrics to it. And I just want to give you a forewarning. They wrote it so that it will disturb you. It says, politicians, morticians, Philistines, homophobes, skinheads, deadheads, tax evaders, street kids, alcoholics, workaholics, wise guys, dimwits, blue collars, white collars, warmongers, peaceniks. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Suicidals, rock idols, shut-ins, dropouts, friendless, homeless, penniless, depressed, presidents, residents, foreigners, aliens, dissidents, feminists, xenophobes, and chauvinists. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Evolutionists, creationists, perverts, slumlords, deadbeats, athletes, Protestants, and Catholics, housewives, neophytes, pro-choice, pro-life, misogynists, monogamists, philanthropists, blacks and whites. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Police, obese, lawyers and government, sex offenders, tax collectors, war vets, rejects, atheists, scientists, racists, Sadists, biographers, photographers, artists, and pornographers. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Gays and lesbians, demagogues and thespians, the disabled, preachers, doctors and teachers, meat eaters, wife beaters, judges and juries, long hairs, no hairs, everybody, everywhere. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. Breathe deep. Breathe deep the breath of God. What the patriarchs show us is that no one is outside of God's reach. It is not dependent on how much we can prove ourselves worthy of what God is doing. All of us rest in the words of that song. Somewhere, someplace. And when we hear them, sometimes they cause us to be disturbed because we think, no, that person can't possibly. Or we think, no, I can't possibly. Let me repeat. No one is outside of God's reach and we are not, it is not dependent on us proving ourselves to Him. The patriarchs prove that over and over again. In the middle of the story of the patriarchs, when Abraham has sent out a servant to go find a wife for his son, Isaac. In Genesis 24, 27, it says this. The servant finds the woman and is finding favor to bring her home. And he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. You see, what we see about God's redemptive pursuit through Scripture, what we see in the patriarchs is this, that God is always the one who is faithful. He is the one who is steadfast. But we need to stop there for a minute. Life is crushing. 
It is no wonder that we try to make things right in our own eyes. It is no wonder that we emulate and imitate the lives of the patriarchs over and over again. For those of us who are within the kingdom, those of us who are walking with Christ, in Christ, because of the grace that God has poured on us, we cannot deny the fact that there is oftentimes in our lives that we look around and say, where are you, God? Why is this happening? Why have my children walked away from the faith? Why am I sick in this way? How did I lose this job? Why is this relationship continually broken? Is it any wonder that in the crushingness of life that we don't try with all our might to work it out? To come out with a plan? We think that we deserve to be on the throne. Life is crushing. We should not deny that. And if you're here and you've not begun the journey with Christ, or you had and you've stopped moving in that direction for fear that it might be the wrong way, hear me say, life is crushing. But the Father is faithful in His steadfast love. There is nothing you have done that will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus for you. You have not moved too far yet. Look at the patriarchs. Who is faithful? God is. Now, the amazing thing that happens in this story is, is in Genesis 28 and Genesis 35. And we see this happen in particular with Jacob, who becomes Israel. And it's at a place that he calls Bethel, which means the house of God. Now, in chapter 28, it's right after he has fled. He has left Esau because he knows that Esau is coming to kill him. <laughs> and he's worried. And afraid, and he has that dream that we talked about earlier. And what God does is he comes down and he says, This is the land that I will give you. This is the place where I will bless you. And Jacob says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And then in 35, this is right before he is actually going to see um, Esau. Right after he's seen Esau, we see God bless him. He calls him out and he says, I want you to go back to Bethel. And he blesses him again and he gives him the covenant. He renews to him. He says, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am the God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. You see, God's relentless pursuit of redemption is still faithful. Richard Rohr says this, in every leap of life, every turn toward the future, 
every creative momentum, every loving surge, every dash towards beauty, every running towards truth, every ecstasy over simple goodness, every bit of ambition for wholeness and holiness is the eternally flowing life of the Trinitarian God. Grace is not an occasional additive in our world that some people occasionally mention. But it is revolutionary inherit in all of creation. When we look back and remember that when creation was made, it was good. That God's grace abounded even at that place. We recognize that in the life of the patriarchs, every move towards goodness, every move towards beauty, every move towards wholeness and holiness is there only because of the grace of God. Grace is not an occasional additive in our world. That's why we, as a body of believers that are gathered together, are called to be grace-filled people, centered completely in one, that we've been saved by grace and grace alone, and two, that God's common grace extends to all people and all creation, and it gives us the ability to speak truth into the truth that they're saying. Because sometimes they're true because of God's common grace will match up to the truth of who God is. And we can celebrate it with them and call it beautiful and good and whole and even holy. Now what Jacob did there in Bethel is he stacked stones up. He poured oil and and one he offered a drink offering and then oil over it. And it immediately in our mind should push us forward because we have the benefit of seeing the whole story up to the point that we're at now. And it should push us forward back to the best page in the story. Because it's when the stone was rolled away at the grave and the resurrection happened that this power comes for us to be able to go. Yes, life is crushing but there is hope. That it is not an either-or for us, those of us who walk with Christ. It is a both-and. We have the ability to stand firmly in the crushingness of the world and acknowledge it as true, hoping, knowing that God can overcome it. Louis C.K. is a comedian, not a very clean comedian, so don't go search him on YouTube. <laughs> but he was in an interview with Conan O'Brien, who's a late-night talk show host. And he told the story about how he was sitting in his car. And he said, at that moment, all of a sudden, the loneliness of the world, that great sucking vacuum of loneliness, started to come into my heart. And what do we all normally do when that happens? We find something else to do. He, he said, that's why I think most people text while they drive. Because when you're driving all by yourself, all of a sudden the world starts coming in on you and you realize the crushingness of it all. And so you've got to find something to distract you from that coming in. 
And he said, but for that moment, what I did is I pulled over and I just let the sadness come to me. And it rushed in. And he said, and I cried like a baby. He said, but in that moment, joy began to seep in. And here's this man who doesn't know the truth, who speaks truth. He said, because when I haven't been able to feel the full weight of sadness and loneliness, I will never be able to feel the full weight of joy. Because the stone was rolled away, and because, as Ephesians 2, 19-22 tells us, reminds us, that we are actually being built up into the house of God. Those who are far off and those who are near, through Christ we are pulled together to be built into the household of God. It's at that place that we can say to one another, let's experience all of it together. That's why we need community. This redemptive pursuit of God, his story that we see in the patriarchs is that his faithfulness is always calling to us. His transforming is always coming to us. His movement to move us away from our false self to our truth self is always coming for us. It is pursuing us. And he is the one who is faithful. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. Hold us close to you. Let us hear your words. Let us know that they are true. It's in your precious Son's name, Jesus, who makes this possible, we pray. Amen. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is the bread, this is my body broken for you take and eat and then he took the cup afterwards and he said this is my blood the new covenant shed for you take drink do this in remembrance of me what i'd like you to do right now is stand up as we respond to hearing what communion is about the lord's supper is about for us and from the words of the lord so stand up and we're going to say the apostles creed together now you've sung this before but let's say this together I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell, and third day He rose again from the dead. He ascends into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As we take communion today, I want you to take the bread immediately, hold the cup, if you're here and you do not follow Christ, you are moving forward, but you don't know completely that you believe this, we just ask that you refrain. Pray, seek God, ask Him to reveal Himself to you. If we seek Him, He seeks after us. He's already doing it.
If you're here today and you have conflict, you have uh, a burden with your brother or your sister, I just pray that you'll try and resolve that before you take of this. Let me, let me say this as well. While we're taking communion, if you are feeling inclined to pray for somebody, because God will do that, <laughs> you don't have to just stay where you're seated to pray for them. If they're here, you can get up and you can go pray for them right where they're at. Okay? So I encourage you to do that.